Do you remember me? (laughs) Any of you disappointed I came back? (laughs) Well, it is good to be back with you, church. Uh, It's been a long time. It's been four weeks since I've been up here, and so I've been missing you. So good to be home. Um, You might be wondering, Rusty, you told us all about this trip to Arizona you were taking. Why do you look whiter now than when you left? (laughs) What happened? And um, maybe you already heard word that our trip wasn't all that it was planned to be. Those who know me well know that I'm like an Uber trip planner. Like it's my favorite hobby to plan trips, and I am just meticulous. For over a year, I had planned every aspect of this trip to Arizona, like every meal, every little, every little drive, every hike, every site. And I've been counting down the days to Arizona where we were going to travel, road trip there for two weeks with my wife's sister and her family from Fargo. Their three daughters are kind of best friends with my three daughters, and so look forward to it for a long time. So a few Wednesdays ago, we were to leave, but on the Monday, I thought we should start gathering our stuff to get ready. I went to the file where I keep all our important documents to discover that my passport was the only document in this file. Where are Erica and the girls' birth certificates, passports, all of that? We tore the house apart, couldn't find them. Uh, Figured uh, our best guess was that when they took the trip to the States in August, all that stuff got left in a folder in the car, and uh, when someone did a deep clean of the car after that trip, got tossed. We had no documents, and so we kind of thought, what are we going to do? Kind of collected ourselves, found some other documents. We thought, maybe we could make a case with this, some photocopies. So we thought, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to try, and now instead of going down Pembina, big border crossing, we're going to go to that little one. We go to that little one, Highway 59, because Erica's from five minutes south of there. They all know her family. Whenever we cross there, they look down and go, what's Janelle cooking for supper? So I thought, oh, they'll, they'll be favorable towards us. And so um, we started driving down there Wednesday morning. And uh, 10 minutes before we got to the border, got a text from her sister saying that her husband, Mark, had just tested positive for COVID and was now in isolation. And uh, eventually, the wife got it, two of the three daughters got it. And so uh, we were 10 minutes from crossing the border to be at their home, you know, an hour or two later. And uh, we pulled over to the side of the road on Highway 59 and sat there for half an hour, girls crying, me just staring into space. (laughs) Literally, just staring into space. And ladies, you know, like hard to pull stuff out of your husbands. What are you feeling, honey? I'm just... I was in a daze. All right. There's more to the story um, than that, but I do have a sermon to preach. We turned around. We came home. We actually did decide to go, and maybe they could fly and join us the second week once he was done co- you know, done uh, his isolation. The others hadn't yet tested positive. We didn't know that they would. They ended up, so that we're going to do it. We went. We crossed the border. We got to the South Dakota border. Erica, we, we started to, to feel like maybe we, had this, we weren't supposed to be doing this. And um, All right, one little more detail. Initially, as we were driving through St. Malo or, or St. Pierre, 
right, uh, right on the highway, there's an intersection, and one of these like big semis with a big chunk of windmill that's like 100 feet long and two, two lanes wide pulled out right in front of me. And like, you couldn't wait for me to pass, you jerk. <laughs> like the pastor has some patience issue on the road, okay? <laughs> it took him two minutes to take this turn, pilot car at the front, pilot car behind. I'm sitting there. Finally, I'm going 40 kilometers an hour behind this thing that takes up two lanes. It's a single-lane highway. I cannot get past this thing. 40 kilometers an hour, just gritting my teeth. And then when that call came, I realized... Had we not been delayed, we would have been across the border when we got that call. And uh, having to test and everything to come back. And funny enough, 24 hours later, when we were at the South Dakota border, and Erica turned to me and said, I, Rusty, I, I, just, I don't feel we should be doing this. I'm not sure. One minute after she said that, we pulled behind the same pilot car, the same piece of windmill. We're like two states... Two provinces separated one minute after this conversation. And we're like, God, what do you want us to do? We ended up turning around. We went to Alberta. It, it, it's probably an indicator of how easy my life has been that I don't remember ever in my life being as disappointed and emotionally upset as I was for two days after that. I could hardly talk. And uh, eventually we had a good time. In Alberta, seeing my family. In fact, we were in church the next Sunday, my brother's church in Edmonton. And the preacher, just in passing, uh, shared Romans 5.5, which says that in Christ, we have a hope that does not lead to disappointment. When I heard that, it's like God just spoke to me. It's like, I was so disappointed. I was gripped with this disappointment. And it was just a reminder that in Christ, um, we have a hope that will never disappoint us. I can know that God is at work for my good in all these circumstances. Even if I don't know what's going on, my hope is in Him. And that will never let me down. So anyway, God, God kind of helped me through that, and we had a great time. So that's why there's no tan. That's my story, okay? But it's good to be back with you. And I returned here, and all of a sudden this place turned into Christmas. And this is incredible. And the decorating team that did this, this is awesome. And so I figured I had to honor that by bringing out my best new Christmas sweater and so I got that, and I got my, like, red woolen Christmas socks to match, and then, so I'm all good to go here, and uh, I love Christmas. You know me, you know I love Christmas. I start playing, like, September, the music. The music is great. We all love Christmas carols. I don't know if you're like me, like, you just start hearing the tune, you start, you start singing reflexively without even really thinking about what you're singing, and you know, you know what has something to do with the story, the story we all know, yeah, there was like an angel and there, and there was a Mary and then there was a pregnancy and there, there was a birth, there was a star, angels, shepherds, wise men, great story. And most of these carols tell this story. But you know, there are a few carols that if you look closely, there's either like a phrase or a verse that is really profound where God just inspired the author of these carols uh, just, just to give some deep insight into the significance of the coming of Christ that, that it's easy to miss if you just skim across the surface. And so in this series now through December, I think this is week three, what we're doing each week is we're just taking a different carol uh, and looking at a phrase, a few words that leads us into some deep, deeper insight into the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so... 
we just sang a song called Thou Didst Leave Thy Throne. I heard some of you sang it. You know what? Some of you, you'd never heard that song before. It's not, it's not one of those tier one Christmas carols, maybe not a tier two. That might be like a tier three Christmas carol. But the words are great, and there's a, there, there's a verse in there that when I've sung it, it's always kind of struck me like as interesting. Why is this in a Christmas carol? It said, the foxes found rest and the birds their nest uh, in, in the shade of the forest trees. But thy couch was the sod, O thou Son of God, in the deserts of Galilee. What's that doing in a Christmas carol? Thy couch was the sod. Those are the words we're going to explore. Now, Nathan Tulliner in our church who runs Lock Sod Farm, I came to him this week to see if he wanted to sponsor this sermon. He said he didn't really feel it was appropriate to have a paid advertisement in a sermon, and I said, oh, Mr. Big Shot here, so spiritual. <laughs> to each their own. Thy couch was the sod. So um, I'm not sure that we've kind of yet come to God in prayer this morning, so can we just take a moment before we launch into this message to come to God's Word just to invite God to speak to us? Father God, um, you're our creator, you're our redeemer, you're our sustainer. You've revealed yourself to us and you've revealed your will for us, a good will. And so God, we just come and, and we, we acknowledge that we're not just talk, we're not just singing about you, we're not just talking about you, that what, what, we're, what is going to happen now is you're going to speak to us. And so we open up our minds, we open up our hearts to your word, which is living word, which would you take your word and would you bring it to life in our lives? And would you give each one of us this morning that it is uh, that we need from you? In your son's name we pray, amen. Thy couch was the sod. Okay, what's that doing in there? What does that mean? Well, maybe you know that actually that author, I don't even know who that was that wrote that song, he's actually quoting Jesus. Those are the words of Jesus that we find in a few different Gospels. But in, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, we find that you know, Jesus has attracted a crowd of followers. They're, they're curious about who he is. And um, this crowd is around him. And then this one teacher of the law in verse 19 came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied to him, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so what he's doing there is he's essentially saying, are you sure you want to follow me? Because I just want to let you know, like there is a cost to following me. It won't always be easy. Because look at my life. The fo these animals, they have homes, but I have no place to lay my head. Essentially what Jesus is saying there in some kind of poetic language is he's saying, listen, I'm homeless. I'm homeless. And he was. Jesus didn't have a home. He didn't have a bed that was his on which he could lay his head. And that wasn't just true for Jesus at that point as an adult in his ministry. That's actually how his story began. Right? Like if you go all the way back to his birth, you find that Jesus enters this world homeless. Born into, we're not sure if it's a stable, is it a cave, we're not really sure. But it's not a place where humans live, where babies are born. He enters the world in this place that's not his town, in this place that's not his home. That's actually just the home of donkeys and sheep. 
and other dirty animals, and there's no bed, so his mom and dad, they lay him on this bed of sod, of grass, of hay, and this manger, this animal feeding trough, and that's how Jesus' story on earth begins, homeless, no room in the inn, and it doesn't even really get much better, because if you know the story, you know that not long after that, Mary and Joseph have to take little baby Jesus, and they have to flee to Egypt to find safety and refuge. Like, Jesus was a refugee. I forget that. You know, when I hear refugees in the world, and when I read a study a couple months back that said that the group of people, now this is an American study, that are most against accepting refugees into their country are white evangelicals. And I thought, what have you forgotten? Was our Lord not a refugee? And so what we're doing in sponsoring this refugee family is helping... (laughs) I just think it's so appropriate at Christmas because I was reminded this week as I was thinking about this, Jesus was a refugee in a place that was not his home. And eventually he made his way back. But, but so thy couch was a sod. Uh, thy couch was a sod is really a reference to this homelessness of Jesus from the very beginning. And, and, and you know, like Jesus' story is not what you would expect like when throughout human history, when legends have been developed to like show how exceptional this person is that people claim as a deity or a really important leader, you know, like the, the, the origin story is always exceptional and fantastical. And so I was just reading this week about Kim Jong-il, who's now deceased, but was a father of Kim Jong-un, the current leader, dictator of North Korea. And so, do you know what the the people of North Korea are taught about Kim Jong-il? Well, this is what they're taught about Dear Leader, who was given the title Glorious General Who Descended from Heaven. That was his title. They're taught he was born in 1942 on the very top at the peak of the most sacred mountain in Korea, Mount Pektu. And his birth was foretold by a swallow. And the moment he was born, instantly in Korea, the seasons changed. Winter fled and everything bloomed the moment he was born. A new star was born in the sky and a double rainbow appeared over the mountain. At three weeks of age, Kim Jong-il started to walk. At eight weeks old, he started to talk. He controlled the weather with his mood. Kim Jong-il invented the hamburger. (laughs) Now, literally in Korean, it's like gyeong-yi-bang or something, but it translated literally, it's double bread with meat, but um, creative name. So he invented the hamburger... The very first time Kim Jong-il went golfing, he had 11 holes in one. And he broke the world record at a 38 under par. His body evolved beyond having to use the toilet because his body worked so perfectly it didn't produce any human waste. That's what they're taught. That's how exceptional this guy was. Right? But this is, this is what's happened throughout human history, right? Someone's really important, some deity or leader, it's like they have to have an exceptional story to show how exceptional of a person they are. And 
you might expect the story of Jesus to have some of those elements, you know, for his birth to show how special of a person he is, how extraordinary that his birth would be unlike other ordinary people's births and their stories. And even some of this mindset kind of has filtered into some of our carols. And I mean, I don't mean to like throw shade at some of the beautiful carols that we cherish, but like even in Silent Night, Holy Night, right? All is calm, all is bright, radiant beams from thy holy face sleep in heavenly peace. Or away in a manger, like we just sang it there, right? The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, the little baby wakes. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. This baby doesn't cry. This baby has beams of light coming from its face because this baby is special. And yet when you look at the story in the scriptures, you don't find that at all. You, what you're struck by is how incredibly ordinary this birth is. Darkness in some stable or cave no light, a place of stink, of stench around these animals. No sense that Jesus didn't cry. Like Jesus, I'm sure he wailed until Mary. Wanted to do something, right? I'm not sure what I can all say here, right? We got mothers in the room. You know what it's like. The baby won't stop crying. Baby Jesus probably had jaundice. His birth was extraordinarily ordinary for such an extraordinary person. Not only was it so, but it had to be so. That's what these words mean, thy couch was the sod. Not that it was, but it had to be so. Why? Well, this is what the author of Hebrews says. It gives us some insight. In Hebrews chapter 2, if you have your Bible, turn there because we're going to be settled in Hebrews for a little while. Hebrews chapter 2 just want to read verse 10. If you've ever read this verse, I'm sure it's perplexed you. The author of Hebrews uh, says in chapter 2, verse 10, about Jesus, he says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, this is Jesus now, or your version might say the author of their salvation, perfect, through what he suffered. Jesus had to be made perfect through what he suffered. Now, maybe you've read that and you've got, oh, time out. Jesus had to, he wasn't already perfect? That doesn't sound right. Was Jesus not already perfect? Well, the answer is yes and the answer is no. Jesus was, as, as the Son of God, God the Son for all eternity past and all eternity future is perfect, a perfect being perfect in holiness, morally perfect, perfect in wisdom. But there was a way in which Jesus was not perfect. He was not a perfect Savior. He needed to be made complete, perfected as the author of our salvation. And the only way that could happen, according to the author of Hebrews, is through what he suffered. He was made perfect as the author of our salvation through what he suffered. And he thought, okay, now I know what's going on. He's talking about the cross, right? Rusty, this is weird. I thought this was like a Christmas sermon, not an Easter sermon. He suffered on the cross. He died for us. That's what he's talking about. No. That's part of it. But that's only one 
part of it. He doesn't have in mind here when he uses the word suffering just that week or that day on the cross. In fact, kind of listen to how he continues. Let's skip down to verse 14 to 18. Since the children, now that's how he's referring to us, human beings, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels that Jesus helps, but it's Abraham's descendants, it's people, it's human beings. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, that is like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service that he might become. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. If you go back up to verse 14, it says that Jesus shared in their humanity. What does that mean? Jesus shared in their humanity. Well, verse 17 kind of unpacks that. For this reason, he had to be made like us. For what reason? To help us. In order to help us, Jesus had to be made like us. Well, what does that mean, to be like us? Well, he, he makes it really clear. Fully human in every way. In order to help us, Jesus need to be, needed to be fully human in every way. What does that mean? Like, in what way was Jesus fully human in every way? Well, certainly it means that Jesus was a human being. He didn't put on a disguise. It wasn't some sort of vision, a cloak he wore. That Jesus was as human as you and I. If you were to test his DNA, human. If you were to cut him, he would have bled red. And this is the mystery of the incarnation, God becoming man. And I don't understand it. I can't draw a diagram and tell you exactly how that all works. But you know what? In order for God to be God, like he has to be beyond what my finite mind can manage. He has to be outside of that because if I can understand it, he's not God. I mean, I, I, I believe that God is eternal, no beginning and no end, but I'm finite. I have a beginning and an end. Everything else I touch and see has a beginning and has an end. I don't understand how something cannot have a beginning and not have an end. It's beyond my ability to comprehend, and yet, I, and yet on the other hand, it has to be so, right? Like, and yet it makes sense. It's not irrational. It's beyond human Ration, and that is who God is. He is beyond. And so what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is this great reality that we call the incarnation that others in the Scriptures will speak about, that God became man. Not as a disguise, but fully human in His nature in a way that did not detract from His godliness, fully God, fully man, not 50-50, 100% each. So, fully human in every way, he's a human being. But I think the author of Hebrews has more in mind when he says that he was made fully human in every way. He was also fully human in his experience. Jesus embraced and entered into the full human experience. 
Now, I know I've shared this story at, at some point. Some of you have heard it. But back when I was a student at Providence College, they had this on the, this one weekend. They wanted to give us, you know, sheltered kids who most like often came from, you know, good middle-class homes, an opportunity to experience what the homeless life was like. And so they had a Be Homeless for a Day event, and you could sign up, and you got... Um, you got dropped off in downtown Winnipeg and you were supposed to just live there for 24 hours and then be brought home. And we thought this would be fun. And so, uh, yeah, let's get a taste. So we went and, you know, the first couple hours, oh, they weren't too bad. And then it was November. The sun went down. It got really cold. We had jackets, but that's still, it was too cold. We're trying, huddling on a park bench. Too cold, so we, we found this little underground, like, bank ATM that was heated, so we laid down in there, but then a security guard kicked us out, so we were just kind of wandering around, found ourselves in a bus shelter at 2 a.m. on Portage Avenue, just desolate, no movement, no sound, except then we saw this guy bolting down the, the sidewalk towards us, no shoes, no shirt, bleeding from his head. That this just got real. He ran, and then he came into the bus shelter. And he's kind of incoherent, but he's, he's, there's like a block away, there's a gang that just beat him up and stole his shoes and stole his shirt and, and, and bloodied him, and he's just running away. And a block from here, you said? Yeah, a block from here. Let's go home. So we did. We don't need to do this. We don't need to do this. We already got it. It sucks. We got it. Let's go home. And so we found my car and we hopped in and we went home and we spent the rest of the night in our own beds at Providence College in, in the dormitory. When he says that Jesus was fully human in every way, what, what he means is Jesus didn't do that. He didn't just come and dabble in humanity, in the human experience, just to get a taste for what life is like. He entered into an experience and embraced the whole gamut of human suffering and human hardship. So in verse 18, it says, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So part of that suffering was he faced all the tempta- all human temptation. All the temptation that you and I face. The temptation to lust and to greed and to pride and to anger. And all that you and I know. And we read that and we go, really, did Jesus really? But he was God. It was kind of different, right? And yet if you go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15... It says, um, we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. Not only was he tempted in every way and, and, and knew the weight, the pressure of that, but he knew it even more than you and I, because at some point we give in. At some point, the pressure becomes so great, the temptation that we sin. It's like, you know, have you ever brunch pressed, which obviously I haven't? Much in my life. At some point, the weight is so heavy, you just can't do it. The arms buckle and it falls down. You're out. What he's saying is Jesus was under that weight and he never gave in. He knew the full weight. Of, in that sense, he's almost more human than you and I. That was a part of his suffering the author here says. So, so what is the suffering that made Jesus perfect as the author of salvation? I think he's talking about, he's talking about 
the whole human experience of Jesus. Right from the very beginning, starting as an embryo in his mother's womb, being born a nobody in a stable, placed in the hay, a refugee, having to flee for their lives. And then, and then what? Well, we don't really know. Because there's this big gap in the life of Jesus. We got his birth, and then the next time he's like 30 and he's being baptized and he's beginning his ministry. Well, what was Jesus doing for 30 years? Kind of like to know. Well, you would, but you really wouldn't. Because it wouldn't be interesting. He wasn't just waiting for his time to shine. What was Jesus doing for all of those years? He was being human. He was being perfected in experiencing everything that you and I experience, being bullied in school, having parents that didn't understand, didn't get him, right? Going to work, having to work late, having to pay the bills, financial stress, back pain, sickness, the flu, friends that betray him, garden of Gethsemane, when he's so overcome with grief and emotion at what he knows is coming that he sweats drops of blood. He knew mental and emotional anguish to a degree that I can't comprehend, so much so that it actually manifested itself as sweating drops of blood. So, his suffering was this whole experience of, of human existence, of what you live and what I live, embracing the pain, right? being hungry, relational problems, temptation. He knew what it was to be hungry. Now, he didn't have to be hungry, right? Which is why at the beginning of his ministry, remember, like he's, he's out in the desert and he's hungry 40 days of fasting. I've never made it past hour 18. Like, like I went to a 30-hour famine once, but full confession, I hit something in my backpack. Okay? That's been weighing on me for a long time. So he's there and he's hungry and then Satan comes to him, right, to tempt him. You're the son of God. We both know you don't have to be hungry. You could just turn that stone into bread. You could solve your hunger. And he could have. But you know what Satan was trying to do? We might think that's just like a secondary little periphery story that didn't really matter. No. He's trying to like totally eradicate the mission of Jesus. What was the mission of Jesus? To be fully human in every way, to share in their humanity the full breadth of hardship and suffering. And Satan started to derail him from that. You don't need to share in that. But he resisted. No. He embraced hunger and thirst. And while he fed others with his divine, miraculous power, interestingly, he never fed himself. He never used his own power to his own advantage, only to the advantage of others. So while he multiplied bread for others, he never did for himself. And while he healed others, he never healed himself. And so you'll have this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, when he's hung up on a cross, and, those, and, and many were mocking him. And it says that some of these uh, leaders of the land, chief priests, were mocking Jesus as he hung there, and they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's supposed to be the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He can't even save himself. 
Well, what Jesus would say a few verses earlier is, no, it's not that he couldn't save himself, it's that he wouldn't save himself. Because even just the night before, when he's arrested in the garden and Peter wants to fight and he pulls out the sword and Jesus tells him to put back the sword, Jesus says, do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Do you think that this is being forced upon me? No, I am willingly embracing and accepting and entering into all of it. All humanness and brokenness that comes with it from birth Till death. And he did. On that cross, he tasted death. And so Frederick Nietzsche would say, to live is to suffer. Have you lived long enough to know that's true? To be human is to suffer, at least in this life. There's no way around it. Some suffer more than others. Some suffer in different ways than others, but to live is to suffer. It's like I wonder in this room, I wonder how you're suffering. I, like what, I wonder what hardship that you're facing, that you're carrying. That there might be something today, it might be a money thing or a health thing or a, a relationship thing or like a, a mental health thing. I wonder how, how you're suffering I wonder how you have suffered. I wonder how you will suffer tomorrow in ways you didn't expect. We all suffer. To live is to suffer. And you know, suffering can be really isolating. It can be really isolating. Um, you know, it, it, it can bring shame, right? Maybe your suffering is the result of your own bad decisions. And you know it. And that just brings guilt and shame and it causes you to kind of Isolate yourself, retreat from God or others. Suffering can bring embarrassment, right? Like embarrassment that you're weak. Like that person over there, they experience the same thing, and yet they seem to be okay. And yet, and yet, look at me. I can't deal with it. I can't cope. I'm having a panic attack. I'm anxious. What's wrong with me? I'm weak. And we can feel embarrassed about our weakness. So we retreat. We isolate. Suffering can bring loneliness because, you know what? People just don't understand. They might think they understand. They might give some, hey, with some good intentions, they might give some good advice about what they think I ought to do in this situation. But at the end of the day, they just don't know. They can't know. Because they haven't been here. They haven't walked in my shoes. They don't know. And oh, I wish I had someone that could empathize with me. Empathize with my suffering. Empathize with my weakness. But I feel so alone in it. Because others, they just don't know. Last week, the message was on that, that beautiful uh, carol, O Holy Night. But there, there's just such a, a beautiful verse in there that says, The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials, Born to be our friend. He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. I love those words. See, that's what it means when, when the other guy said, thy couch is the sod. It means that to Jesus, he is not a stranger to our weakness. 
He's not a stranger to our experience of suffering, whatever that might be. We're in a pit. And I don't know, maybe you feel like you're in a pit in some way. And, and people might be trying to throw in some good advice from out on top of the hole. And you just wish that there was somebody that could be with you. Could be with you in the pit. Who could understand, who could empathize, who could walk with you. The author of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, who has suffered in every way, yet did so without sin. You know, so what Christmas means, God becoming man is that he comes down to the pit where we are to experience what we experience. Christmas means like God understands. He doesn't just see. A lot of people see. We know God sees. He's infinite. He's really smart. He's all-powerful. But it, he doesn't just see. He understands. Because he has lived our weakness. And what difference would that make? Like if that were true, and it is true, what difference would that make? Well, back in chapter 2, verse 17, the author of Hebrews says, well, he gives us really two reasons. He says, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way. One, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. So that we can know, so that he can be, and that we can know that he is someone who gets us. Who gets it. Who's not going to look at that predicament and say, come on, and not understand, or judge, or turn us away. But someone who will always say, I know. I've been there. I know. In his suffering, he has become for us an advocate within the person of God. He is merciful and faithful to our need because he knows our weakness, no matter what it is. But he says, it also makes another difference. He has become through his suffering merciful and faithful high priest, but also he became fully human in every way that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He might make atonement for the sins of us, you, I, the world. You know, in our suffering, and I'm going to be honest, I, I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't suffered a lot. You know, it's sometimes it's hard for me pastorally because, you know, you, someone comes to me and they're going through something else, and I, I try to do my best to conjure what that could be like and maybe console and maybe have some wisdom, but half the time I'm making it up. Man, what do I know? I mean, we want someone who can empathize with us, but we want more than that too, right? In our suffering, we want someone who can be with us, but then also can take us out of it, who can help us out, deliver us. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's like, he suffered the fullness of human suffering so that he could lead us out of it. I think that's what he means in verse 9. 
of chapter 2 when he says, Jesus suffered death so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. Not just death, death with everyone, like, hey, I'm with you. You got to die, I'm going to die with you. Not just death with everyone, but death for everyone. I'm going to do something in your place for you. And so in verse 10, when it says that Jesus had to be made a perfect Savior by what he suffered, I think what he means is through all of that from birth, all of that that he experienced and suffered right to death, having done that, entered into that fully but without sin, he has become a perfect substitute for you and I on that cross in his death. He has died our death. He succeeded where we failed from birth to death, experiencing everything that you experience. And so, you know, it's not just a cross that saves us. It's the whole life of Jesus that saves us, right from beginning to end, that he did it all. He experienced it all, yet without sin. So that when he got to that point in his life on the cross, what he could actually do is he could actually taste death for you and I, those who are weak, those who are broken, those who gave in to temptation. He could actually taste death for us so that we might have life, eternal life with God, the life we were created to have. It's his birth that saves us just as much as his death, right? I mean, it's not that Jesus could just be helicoptered in. All right, I've got an appointment here. Let's just get this done. Let's just hang on a cross and get this done. I mean, it's not just about him dying on a cross. It's about him being fully human, sharing in that with us so that he could be a perfect substitute, a savior for us. A salvation that we receive through faith, that we can only receive through faith in Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. Thy couch was the sod, O thou son of God. So like, as I bring this to a close here, what difference does that make? What difference ought that to make? That Jesus shared in your humanity, has experienced all the weakness and all the suffering that you have and will experience. What difference would that actually make? Well, this is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 16. After saying that Jesus is able to empathize with us in our weakness, let us then approach God's throne of grace with, say it with me, confidence. confidence. I love that word. That's the difference it makes. I think it's the word confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What do, what do I mean by saying like that, that confidence is the key word there? Well, like approaching the king, that's what he's saying. He's envisioning a throne room. You're just a normal peasant person approaching who just happens to be the king of the universe. That's kind of scary. I've never approached a king. You probably haven't either. The people of this day, like they probably understood kind of like, ooh. They could envision that scenario. In fact, I mean, we have an example of that right in the Bible, in the book of Esther, who was the queen, and she wanted to approach her husband, the king, the Persian king, Artaxerxes, and she was terrified that he might not receive her and kill her because you just didn't do that. You had to be summoned by the king. You don't just come before the king anytime you want with whatever reason you want. Who do you think you are? You're nobody. He's the king. 
And so that was a terrifying prospect. And in that story, Esther approaches in terror, and her husband, the king, has mercy on her, and he holds up the scepter, which is a way of saying, I receive you, please present your request. And this is the picture. That because Jesus shared in our humanity, fully embraced it all, we can know that we can come to God and receive care. We can be confident of his care for us, no matter what we're going through, whether it's suffering of our own making through sin, or whether it's anything else, big or small, we can come knowing that through Jesus Christ, his humanity, God knows, God understands, God is empathetic, God will receive us no matter what, approach God with confidence. Do not let shame or embarrassment or anything else keep you from that because you will be received. We have confidence in the care of God towards us. That's what that means. And it also means that we can have confidence in God's commands to us. That we will be given the help that we need in our time of need, it says. I don't know if you've ever had people that thought they, you know, in your situation, they didn't really understand, they'd never experienced it, but they maybe had some good advice, so they thought. You ever been in that position where you're like, thank you, but stop. Like, you don't really know. You have no idea what I'm going through. You've never had a spouse do this to you? You've never got that diagnosis? They just don't get it. I think what the birth of Jesus and his whole life means, his sharing of humanity means that when he speaks to us, when he says, let me tell you something. Um, This is what I think you should do. This is what you should do. Like through his word, like his wisdom and the will of God, we can trust, we can trust it. Because God's been there. He knows what we need because he knows our weakness. And so he knows how to help. And so we can know, we can have confidence in the wisdom and the word of God. Confidence to obey it, even if we don't understand it, because God knows. I mean, it might be easy for us to say, well, that's great, God, that you say that, but you're kind of up there. I guess I'd probably think that or say that too if I were you. But I'm not you, I'm just me, and I'm going through this. And we're so different, and God says, you're not that different. I mean, there's ways in which we're totally different, but then there's ways in which we're just alike. Jesus' humanity gives us this confidence to obey the wisdom, the will of God, to believe that he can and will help us. I, um, I heard a while back about this book that was written. I dug a little bit deeper this week to find more of the details. But there, there's a woman by the name of Dorothy Sayers. She was one of the first women to be admitted to Oxford University, became a well-known writer of de- detective fiction. And um, years ago, she was writing this book. I think it was called The Lord Peter Whimsy Story. And it was about this Peter who was a detective, but he was a messed up guy, lonely guy, um, going through a lot of pain, really needy. And as she was writing the book, she actually started to develop compassion for this character. And so as she wrote the book, she wrote herself into the story. 
So if you read this story now, you'll actually find she's in the story. It's this character, this woman who comes along, who happens to have been the first woman at Oxford, who happens to be a writer of detective fiction, who comes to this man to help him, and he falls in love with her, and they get married, and he help, she helps him solve all of these mysteries. Right? She wrote herself into the story because she had compassion on the character. And I, you know, that's, that's what Christmas is. Christmas is God writing himself into our story. Writing himself into our story so that he can come alongside those who are hurting and weak and broken and come alongside them and walk with them through that and out of that. That's Christmas. Thy couch was the sod. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I want to go to a moment of prayer here. But I want you just to be thinking about, like in your own life, what are you going through? Maybe you just want to bow your head right now, close your eyes, and just think about your life. What weakness are you carrying? Maybe some situation in your life that's external to you, some relationship. It might be some, you know, mental health issue. Could be anything. What is something that you are suffering? It might be big, it might be small. What would it look like for you to approach God's throne of grace with confidence with that weakness? What could that look like? Not to isolate oneself because you think no one could understand, but to believe that God knows, God understands, God cares, and God can help. Father, we invite you to speak to us, each one. One of the things I love about you is that you, you know what's going on in each of our lives. We might smile in the foyer and shake hands and say that everything is going all right, but you know, God, you know. And not only do you see it, but you understand it. Like we just, we, 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 we believe, God, that because you sent your son and because right from the very beginning, the way he was born and the way he lived and what he suffered and how he died, that, that you understand, that you know our weakness, that you receive us, that you are willing and able to help us in it. So God, would you just show us what it might look like for us just to bring this to you, to trust you with this, to bring it to you or to bring it to your people, um, or just to find what it is that we need today. In Jesus' name, amen.